Bring a Trailer podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bring a Trailer podcast. This is Alex, and today I am thrilled to say that we are joined by A.J. Bain, noted uh, car writer and author of Go Like Hell and also of Arsenal of Democracy, um, two wonderful books that we'll talk about today. A.J., welcome. Thanks for doing this. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Awesome, man. Uh, really, really uh, excited to talk to you about the many interesting things you've written about. Uh, we were talking just now, and I forgot to mention uh, that I would love to hear about Randy Lanier, too. I know you just wrote a book on that, too. So that's another one we could maybe discuss. The, as the well. Randy story is unbelievable, and there's some exciting news on that front. So, yeah, we'll get to it. So before we dive into the books and into your writing, I'd love to just hear a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and kind of how you got interested in cars. Well, very cool. I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I'm, I'm one of those bizarre people who knew exactly what I wanted to do for a living when I was six years old. I was in first grade, and we had a little homework project, and I created this book. It's called Thunder. I still have it. It's upstairs. We just had a project in first grade, and I wrote this book about a horse named Thunder. And when you read into it, you really realize that I had my first crush on a girl because I was sick. <laughs> and I had a horseback riding teacher who was just so pretty and she smelled good and I loved her. I don't remember her name, but that's the subtext <laughs> of the book. I still have it. But it, I remember then um, I said to my first grade teacher, I'm like, this is the coolest project. I really like doing this. And she's like, AJ, you're going to grow up to be an author. And I'm like, I don't want to be an author. I want to write books because <laughs> obviously I didn't know what an author was. But the other thing that happened to me at that time, I had an uncle, my uncle Bob, who's in Maine right now. And uh, growing up, he was a bankruptcy lawyer who handled all these high profile cases. And a lot of cases he handled for people who couldn't pay him. And so people would pay him in classic cars because he loved cars and he raced motorcycles. And that's the first time I sat in the Di Tommaso Pantera and he had a brown Porsche 911. And uh, was the Pantera legal fee payment? That's quite, quite the case that he was working on there. He had two Panteras in a barn. Neither of them ran, but just to sit in those cars and, and experience the sort of seating position, you're almost lying down. I'd never sensed anything like that. And I was thinking to myself, if this is out there, you know, think how much more is out there. Totally. You're talking about leaning back like in a Ferrari. You're talking about Mustangs in your book uh, or horses in your book. There's some themes that go on that have carried on since you were six years old, AJ. Um, so it sounds like cars and interest in writing came at around the same time for you. That's right. And it yeah. took me a while before I could really do either of them <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, how did, how did it start out? Uh, what were the first gigs? Was it was it mags? Was it newspapers? You didn't yeah. dive right into writing a book, I'm guessing. Well, you know, I firstly, I love your site and I thank you for having me. Um, you have all sorts of passionate people who are going to be hopefully listening to this and who spend time on Brain Trailer. But some of them will be around my age. So I'm 52. And if you grew up at a certain time, particularly guys, you remember Maxim Magazine. And I started working for Maxim when I was a kid. It was my first writing job. And when I got that job, I'd never heard of Maxim. And within two or three issues, it was like this massive pop culture phenomenon. So that's where it all started. Uh, stories about, you know, the newest TV and the newest, you know, radio and the hottest band and pretty girls. <laughs> So I was uh, were, you in a, were you in an office? Were you out in the field for them? What were you doing for Maxim? I'm 40 and I remember Maxim. I was you know, 16. I was in the prime demographic uh, target age when that magazine was was on top in the late Absolutely. 90s. Absolutely. So we had this little office on 39th Street in Manhattan and 6th Avenue. And, you know, late 20s, none of us were married. None of us. <laughs> we were such losers. We had no girlfriends or boyfriends. And so we would show up for work at 10 o'clock in the morning and stay till midnight. 
every day because there was Amazing. nothing else to do and nobody Amazing. had enough money to go out for dinner or anything. So we just stayed at work and, you know, drank beer at night. It was a lot of fun. God, you're making me nostalgic for something I didn't even live through. Uh, that sounds like an awful lot of fun. And uh, car content there at Maxim, right? That's what I remember. I mean, I was road and track reader and everything at that same time. I think, in fact, I think Maxim and road and track were the two mags coming to my house in the late nineties. Were you doing uh, writing about cars for them or what kind of content were you working on? All kinds of stuff. And I was not in the field and I wasn't driving, but that was the first time I got to play with words and cars at the same time. In so much as that I hired the guys who were out in the field riding the car. So maybe some of your listeners know Ken Gross. Ken is like this great writer who's been around forever. And I started working with him back then. And he remains a friend to this day. It was so much fun to get to, you know, go to work. And every now and then they'd let me actually drive something. So I remember <laughs> the first time I got in like a Gallardo and I'm oh, rocketing up and down the West Side Highway. Did was, your writers, the guys you were sending out, were they getting press cars? Is that, I mean, were you doing like actual reviews? It was more lifestyle stuff, right? Or what was the was, approach? We didn't do any reviews. We just picked the card like, you got to drive this. It was yeah. all positive stuff. There was yeah. nobody saying this car is no good or this steering yeah. is not as good as this steering or, you know, this manual transmission's crap. On the e-gear, the e-gear transmission was off the table for the Gallardo review. Exactly. It was all, it was car porn, you know, it's like, yeah. look at these beautiful machines and, and we got to drive them and, you know, some of us did and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, this is what you aspire to if you ever become phenomenally successful in life. I aspire to it still, man. Um, what uh, starts happening in your brain uh, in terms of thinking about writing a book for the first time? Well, at that time, it was sort of what we called at that time was the death of media and the death of journalism. <laughs> and it's so funny because I still write a newspaper column. I still write for a print mm -hmm. magazine to this day. But all those years ago, we were talking about how the industry was, you know, publications went down the tubes. But um, if you're going to be a freelance writer in life, or any sort of freelancer, this, this is advice to any of you people out there, you need multiple revenue streams. You need to be doing a lot of different things and earning money, doing a lot of different things, hopefully doing them well. So always in the back of my mind, I wanted to write a book and I felt like if I could write one really good book and the next day I got run over by a bus and, or I fell down a manhole and that was it for sure. me, I would feel like I had some purpose on this planet. <laughs> A little and bit so, of a legacy to leave behind. Yeah. And so I read the book Seabiscuit and I was really interested. I had an agent who was still my agent today. And he and I were talking about Ford versus Ferrari. And I'm like, somebody should do for motor racing what Seabiscuit was for horse racing. Because if you love horse racing, you read that book and be like, here it is. It's right mm -hmm. here. It just happens to still be right there. But you don't have to know anything about horses totally. or horse racing to think this is a beautifully written book and incredible incredible story. And so that's what I set out to do with Ford Ferrari. Yeah. Quite ambitious, but also super smart. I'm not surprised. I mean, my wife, the the movie based on your book is one of her favorites and she doesn't, couldn't care less about cars, right? Because it's such a fantastic story. One of the things I was struck by reading both those books is how much of a central character the Ford family is. And you're, you mentioned you're an East Coast guy. Is it kind of coincidence? How did you get so into the Fords? Just by nature of the stories that you were writing about? Or was there always an interest in, in that family and their kind of legacy and what they'd done and accomplished? Well, I think it was really like for Ford Ferrari, it was really about the story. And so, you know, I feel like when you want to construct a narrative of this type, the first thing you do in your head is figure out what's the climactic moment. 
what's the climax of the book? And then by exploring what the climax is, that's how you identify who the characters you're going to, because who are they going to be standing there at the end of the totally. movie and the end of the book? Yep. Those are the characters you need to start building on page one. And who was standing there, Henry Ford II? He was the man, you know, he wasn't in the car, but the whole massive phenomenon was his sort of brainchild, right? Right. And um, so he's the first thing you find, like when you get to page one, that's the person you meet, this larger than life chief yeah. executive, you know, one of the most powerful businessmen of his era. And, and you've so, got his origin stories in Arsenal of Democracy as well, which is fascinating. We can talk about that in a little bit. That's right. So the two books, if they go together, the, you know, they came out in the opposite order. One takes place totally. in the 60s and the other. And the one that came out after that is a World War II book. Well, not to jump ahead, but I was wondering if there was a connection there, right? You start diving into the Ford family and all of a sudden, hey, where did the deuce come from, right? And then all of a sudden you're reading about everything they did during World War II. It seems like almost the research for one could lead you to the other. That's exactly what happened. I'm sitting at my desk working at a magazine one day and um, Go Like Hell had come out. The Ford Ferrari book was out and I was trying to think of what was next. And I had all of this amazing stuff about the war that had hit the cutting room floor. And one day I was just reading and I read about the speech that um, FDR gave called the Arsenal of Democracy. And I'm like, I've heard of that. I started reading it. And then I remembered that the Arsenal of Democracy is sort of a nickname to this day for the city of Detroit, because mm -hmm. you could make the argument that it was the city of Detroit and the American automobile business that won World War II for us. That's sort of the theory. And so those two things came together because you could tell the story of what it was like to try to win World War II from the point of view of the Oval Office. And he gives that speech, the arsenal of democracy. We have to do this unprecedented thing. We have to merge military and business and government into mm -hmm. this massive fighting force, unprecedented in history. And that's what the arsenal of democracy was. And so he turns to the American automobile industry and who is there, but of course, the Ford family. What I love about both books, and, and you already kind of touched on this, is the focus on characters and the interesting people. And I mean, now I kind of want to go chronologically and talk about uh, Arsenal of Democracy first, even though it comes later in your bibliography, because the origins of so many of those people are forged during the war. And then, I mean, in a way, you can draw a line to Ford being so dominant in the 50s and 60s to their success in, in war production. But uh, just what I was going to say in terms about your books is the focus on interesting characters is really what kept me turning the pages. And I'm wondering whether you anchor the story around these people, Sorensen and Harry Bennett and all these fascinating characters. I mean, maybe you could talk a little bit about who those two people are because they're fascinating. Keeps the reader so engaged and interesting. And those are the stories really, you know, story of people is the story of almost any topic. I think you're right. And absolutely. And maybe I can just make an analogy. Whenever I try to get my wife to watch a sporting event with me, you know, like, <laughs> Honey, okay, just this past Sunday, why don't you sit down and watch this football game with me? And she'll roll her eyes. And then I'll tell her the story of Brock Purdy and yeah. who Brock Purdy was and why he's important and why he's fascinating. And she was riveted by the TV now because the whole idea of sports and frankly, war, mm -hmm. you know, it's the story of human beings and their triumphs and tragedies. And I feel like any good story you either need to be rooting for the characters or some of them or one of them, or you want to hate them desperately and want them mm -hmm. desperately to fail. Mm -hmm. you, you're turning the pages and you can't wait for it to happen. And boom, there's very few books written <laughs> where the narrator really hates the main character. But most of them are like, you want the character to succeed. Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's the case, obviously, in, in these books. It's a wonderful analogy about sports and stories and sports. I, I immediately think of the Formula One show that's such a hit on Netflix. I, you know, my wife 
also very interested in that. Again, no interest in cars, but if you're telling the story of these teams and these managers and these drivers, all of a sudden it's fascinating, right? It's a human drama like anything else, right? Like a family drama or like a, you know, historical period piece, anything, right? Absolutely true. And that's what that show, you know, Drive to Survive, that's what it accomplished is introduced the characters and also just like Formula One. I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it can be confusing. Tangents are good. Any kind of motor racing can be pretty darn confusing if you're turning on, if you've never seen it before. Totally. If you're going to watch a NASCAR race and you don't know anything about NASCAR, it's hard to sink into it. You don't know who the characters are. You don't know what the rules are and people are talking on the television or you're there at the track and you don't get it. And that's what that did for Formula One. Well, you know, to tie that back to what I was kind of poorly asking you about is that the characters in your work, they keep you anchored in that they get you interested, right? And I just finished Arsenal of Democracy last night. I loved it. It So good, man. But the real hero of it and the person that was so sympathetic is Edsel Ford, who I never really knew much about. And the legacy for me is the car named after him after the war. And what an impressive and sympathetic character he is. And I, I don't know if he is intended to be the main character of the book, but it certainly felt that way to me, the protagonist, if you will. Absolutely. So the story is, I mean, very briefly, here you have this young man who's born the only legitimate child of Henry Ford. And when Edsel is born, he's got this father who's this sort of weirdo tinkerer. The family has no money. The dad is in the garage, you know, trying to create, invent things. And everybody <laughs> thinks he's a total weirdo. So that's Edsel Ford as a child, you know, he wants to take violin lessons and the family, they don't even have money for a violin. And by the time Edsel Ford is a teenager, this weirdo tinkerer father of his who has no money has become the richest, most famous man in the entire world. And that's, that's quite a transformation for a young person coming of age. So Edsel Ford, his father is a pacifist and Edsel is not allowed. He's forbidden from serving in World War I. And because his father's the super famous guy, he's crushed. His reputation is crushed and his manhood is crushed. And he goes into his adult life as a really fractured soul. And when World War II comes around, he sees this opportunity to redeem himself. And what he has to do is launch the family company into the greatest industrial experiment of all time and build the largest airplane factory to build the key weapon of World War II, which was the four-engine bomber. So we could go and kick the bleep out of the Nazis. (laughs) And his father is fighting him all the way. And so you hear you have this guy, you want him to succeed because you want Mm -hmm. the United States to win the war. But here you have this guy who's just like really lived an extraordinarily difficult life. And this is his shot at redemption. And he's such a good, brilliant, wonderful man. And kind of universally adored, it seems. Everyone likes him. Even some of these hard-ass managers who are running the plant, they really, really adore him and think a lot of him. And interestingly, somewhat in contrast to his father. Absolutely. And also, every good story needs a a villain. You brought him up before. (laughs) So Henry Ford, bizarrely, you can't even believe this is true. Like, So Harry Bennett is the villain of villains. So during the 1930s, Henry Ford hires this tough guy to create the largest private police force in the world, or at least in America, to police the Ford factories and make sure that unions can't get a foothold in the Ford factories. And so Harry Bennett becomes this incredibly powerful figure, and he's literally nothing but a gangster. Yeah. Um, And he becomes Henry Ford's de facto favorite child over Edsel Ford. So Edsel's father is preferring, you know, this villain over himself. And so you have this Shakespearean battle for the empire (laughs) while the company is building Willow Run, the largest airplane factory in the world, and trying to 
win the war. And I shouldn't give this away, but you know, during the climactic scenes of World War II. No spoilers, AJ. Don't, let's, let's have people go check the book out. It's really good. <laughs> I'm Something unexpected happens to Edsel, and we'll leave it there. But it's tragic and sad. And still to this day, because of the Willow Run Ford factory during World War II, the B-24 Liberator is the most mass-produced American military aircraft of all time, even to this day. Amazing. I, the numbers were incredible. And the, I'm interested in airplanes like a lot of car guys. And I think I'd heard that, you know, one was going to roll out every hour. But the fact that they actually achieved that in an airplane that large and complex is quite unbelievable. I mean, it, I guess as I uh, as I was thinking about some of the lessons of the book, it's a testament to the fact that nobody really had a chance against the American, uh, you know, production industry, right? It was making as much as the rest of the world combined almost. And the fact that it spooled up so quickly is interesting to me as well. Were a lot of these things that you learned about surprising to you? Or had you known some of these? I mean, the numbers and the the output is just mind boggling of what the Americans did in just, gosh, under four years, only three and a half years, three years, nine months, something like that. It's unbelievable. It is. And you just have to imagine like here it is in 1940 when they decide that they're going to build this airplane. They start in an empty field and there's an orchard there. And they, you know, there's this great scene in the book where Henry Ford and cast iron Charlie Sorensen, another huge larger than life character. They go out into this field and they're like, we're going to build the largest airplane factory in the world. And meanwhile, the Battle of Britain is going on. Britain's about to fold to the Nazis. And Edsel Ford looks around. It's literally an empty field. All you can hear are birds. And so that's how this all starts. And the idea that they could accomplish this, like when everybody said it couldn't be done to build one of these bombers at a rate of one per hour. These things were 60,000 pounds fully loaded, three stories high. Yeah. It's amazing stuff. I wonder, sorry, just a brief sidebar, because I'm just curious about this. You've written a lot about cars. You obviously understand the technical specifications. You understand how they work. Was it a little tricky to to pivot to airplanes or did it all kind of make sense to you? I mean, it's interesting. It's, there's an, an analog between you as an author who writes about cars having to pivot to writing about airplanes and the Ford company, which was used to building cars and had to pivot to building airplanes and had to figure out all those lessons. Was that tricky for you? And did you think about the comparison there at all? It wasn't tricky for me, and I'll tell you why, but I'll tell you who it was tricky for was the Ford family. <laughs> sure you have to imagine like they had nobody, no one, uh -huh. no company had ever tried to mass produce an airplane like that. Mm -hmm. And you have to figure they couldn't get workers because all, all the skilled workers were going off to war or working sure. at other. Getting drafted right out of their factory, right? Which was yeah. a problem. And then if to bring in 100,000 people to work at this plant and to teach them each of them, how to do their specific thing, you know, to build something that had never been built before. You can imagine how many things go wrong before things go right. Like, for mm -hmm. example, the Detroit race ride in 1943. One of the things that happened during the war, because they were so desperate for, you know, what we call manpower, was to find people to work on these assembly lines and train them to do all the things that needed to be done to build this massive airplane. That's why you had, you know, something like 40% of the people working there were women on assembly mm -hmm. lines and uh, lots of African-Americans working shoulder to shoulder with white people. None of that had ever happened. And uh, mm -hmm. it didn't always go smoothly, which is why there was, you know, the largest race riot of the war years was in 1943 in Detroit. But yeah, it had to be done. And in terms of writing about this, to me, it was the same as writing about cars in a way, because the job is to make people who know a lot about this stuff, who know a lot about cars and airplanes, 
sink into it without thinking like, ah, this author, he sucks. He didn't tell me this. <laughs> he didn't tell me how much horsepower. He didn't tell me about the transmission. Sure. But also be able to explain all of those working systems in a way that they can be fascinating to someone who doesn't know or care mm -hmm. about airplanes or cars. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the goal. Well, you did a, a really wonderful job. And, you know, some of those anecdotes about how tricky it was for the Ford company to figure out how to to switch production from cars to airplanes are great. In particular, the thing as you're talking, I'm thinking about is uh, them flying up to the consolidated factory in, I believe, San Diego, somewhere in California to look at one of these bombers for the first time. All these guys who've become experts at mass producing Ford automobiles. And I love the idea of these, you know, high level executives just immediately thinking about, okay, what kind of tools do we need to build? What kind of factory? And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, they sketched out the idea for this giant mile long factory right there, right? Looking at one of these bombers in the flesh. And the deuce was there too, wasn't he? He was. This is so there's two scenes here. The first one is this fascinating moment where, you know, like in any good story, like in a movie where the gauntlet is laid, like here's this quintessential moment. AJ, I can see it. I can see it happening right now. Actually, the screenplay is, is coming together as we speak. We'll talk about this. There's, there's a great writer okay. working on it and he updates me about what he's writing about daily and it's pretty exciting. But there's this really important scene where Edsel Ford flies out to San Diego and he brings his son, Henry II, with him. Henry Ford II. And they have this meeting with consolidated uh, airplane people and Edsel Ford and Charlie Sorensen, they're sitting there and they literally draw with a piece of paper and a pencil, a little outline of a factory with crosses and the crosses were airplanes. And this is where the assembly line would go. It's this very rudimentary drawing. And they're like, that's it. This is the moment. We're going to build the biggest airplane factory in the world. We're going to mass produce the biggest, most destructive bomber in our arsenal at a rate of one per hour. Everybody will say it can't be done. And we're going to do it. And everybody present, including Edsel Ford and Henry Ford II, signed their name on that little piece of paper. And that piece of paper exists in the Ford archives to this day. Have you laid eyes on that one? Have you seen I it? I have indeed. But the second thing that happens is at that same factory, Ford then sends literally an army, an army of production engineers into that consolidated factory in San Diego to study, how are we going to do this? They have to figure out what raw materials do we need? How do you break it up into subsections? And those are some of my favorite parts of the research because you know to have the oral histories and the actual notes of those sure. engineers who flew in 1940, you know, they put themselves up, Ford paid for their hotel rooms, and they lived there for a month just to study this airplane. And their notes in there, you know, all exist still. Amazing. So they're figuring out, and there was something ridiculous, like a million diagrams that they produced within the first month. That's unbelievable. I mean, I like both the idea of the patriotism of captains of industry so quickly willing, I mean, they're gears just turning so quickly, you know, committing and signing their names to this idea to build this crazy factory. But then also the idea of all these automotive experts coming out and figuring out from scratch, the idea of figuring it out from scratch is so daunting how to build this big bomber, right? In a, or at least figuring out in a completely different way, right? Whereas, correct me if I'm wrong, but airplanes are hand fabricated for the most part, all the way up until Ford decides to mass produce this gigantic beast of an aircraft. Here's an example that I feel like there's a couple examples I can think of that just sort of illuminate how spectacular this whole experiment was. They got 100,000 people working there at this factory that they built. There's nowhere for these people. They had to build an entire city next to the factory for all of these people to live because during World War II, there was rationing on gas and tires. Mm -hmm. They literally had to build a city and parts of it still exist in Ypsilanti, Michigan. 
They called it Bomber City. And we have diaries of people who lived there and what life was like Amazing. in the winter when the plumbing would freeze and <sighs> people would be coming, you know, all day and night and, you know, typhoid broke out. In of this course. Bomber city. <laughs> of course it did. Another thing, just sort of like a little scene in the book that will illuminate just how extraordinary this experiment was, is when FDR comes to see it. FDR comes to see this giant experiment, this bomber factory, and he gets driven through the factory in a, a convertible car. So he's open and he can see what's going on. And at one point he comes up and he sees that there's a bunch of, what, what is the appropriate term? I guess, little people, you know, mm -hmm. the terms you would use were different then. Sure. But um, hired to squeeze into the tight spaces inside wings and tails, right? So they could, you know, people who were two and a half feet tall were mm -hmm. hired so that they could crawl into these spaces inside airplane wings to accomplish certain tasks. I mean, who thinks of these things? Production engineers think of these things. One of the things I appreciated about your book, AJ, was how much it talked about uh, the specifics of what the Ford family needed and, and how they uh, almost recruited for it, right? And how they found, again, to your point about production engineers, how they found roles for people who didn't have legs or didn't have arms or were blind or who were deaf. Fascinating, but and actually quite impressive that Ford was thinking about all those things in the 1940s. I agree. And you know, this is so much fun for me and I appreciate how closely you read the book. This I loved book, it. The Arsenal of Democracy, I think it came out in 2014. And so it's just so fun for me to get to like relive all of it. I'm taking you back to it. I got it right here. It's right next to me. Right. So maybe we can draw the line that I was talking about from this to go like hell, which I'm sure our audience wants to hear about. And maybe the good tie-in is Henry Ford, the deuce, who kind of comes into his own at the end of this Willow Run, you know, when finally the factory's up and running and all these kinks you've talked about are worked out and they're cranking these bombers out. And he kind of becomes the heir apparent at Ford and presumably lays the groundwork for his future fight to come with Enzo Ferrari and, and everything that comes two decades later. Uh, maybe talk a little bit about his ascendancy and what the difference is from Ford's position in Detroit and in the United States before the war and then after this incredible accomplishment fueling America's uh, you know amazing production capacity during the war. Well, basically the Ford family is, they see this incredible ascendancy, you know, king of the new machine age during the Model T days and the Model A and the 32 Ford. But mm -hmm. um, a lot of people don't realize that during the Great Depression, Ford pretty much went down the tubes. And because the, of Henry's reluctance to modernize, right? Mechanical brakes and all that kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. Correct. And I think, you know, he started to frankly lose his mind a little bit as well. Mm -hmm. There was He made some very questionable decisions. And so sure. by the time uh, World War II started, you know, Ford was ranked third in the country in automobile sales behind Chrysler and behind General Motors. And really, Chevrolet had become America's car brand. And the king of the sixes, Pontiac, was really ascending. Uh, and Chrysler was doing well. So during World War II, here you've got this guy named Henry Ford II. He's the grandson of Henry Ford. And he's thought of as a playboy. He goes to Yale. He drives a, a yellow Lincoln Zephyr around, <laughs> fails engineering, and leaves <laughs> Yale without his degree, doesn't finish college. And he ends up in the military during the war. And in World War II, when his father dies, Henry Ford II is asked to come back and wrestle this company away from Harry Bennett and the gangsters who have taken mm -hmm. over Ford Motor Company. Everybody expects Henry II to fail. Only 25 or something like yes, that, Yes, right? he's like 25. And, and here's this family company. It's all he's ever known, but it's failing, like mm -hmm. failing desperately, hemorrhaging money. And he's got no leg to stand on. His father's passed away. His grandfather doesn't care about him. And uh, he's thought of as, quote, the fat young man walking around with the clipboard <laughs> in his hand. That's what he's called. 
And the amazing thing is, you know, during the climactic moments of the arsenal of democracy, he wrestles the company away from these evil forces and becomes this super icon. He turns into one of the most powerful business people in the world. So by the 1960s, when Ford takes on Ferrari, it's really sort of his idea and Lee Iacocca's. He is like world famous, you know, legendary mm -hmm. American icon, Henry Ford II, the most powerful, arguably chief executive of his day, and also known in Detroit as a pretty hard partier as well. <laughs> um, but he somewhat seems to me capitalizes on the goodwill that maybe not the country at large, but certainly the employees or people inside the company felt towards his father, towards Edsel, and kind of takes that mantle from him, right? And people seemed quite worried. Uh, old Henry took the company, made himself president again, right? Right at the end of the war and people were nervous. So there's a little bit of almost a savior quality in Henry Ford II's ascendancy. Absolutely. He saved the company, wouldn't even exist. And I can say there's a climactic moment in the arsenal of democracy that people listening to this are like, they'll think this can't be true, but this happened. The fight before the Ford empire, this family legacy, this Shakespearean battle between good and evil literally came down to two men pointing pistols at each other across <laughs> a desk. And one of them said to the other, don't shoot, Harry, because I'll put one in your back. I swear I won't miss. It's unbelievable. That actually but happened. And good defeats evil. Henry Ford II, the icon is born. And into the 60s, he ends up leading Ford out of World War II into becoming this icon. He leads the greatest corporate comeback you know, ever at that time until Lee Iacocca's Chrysler. But in the 50s, <laughs> during the Eisenhower era, it's Henry Ford II. Yeah. And do they go back to number one? What's the, uh, you can spoil that one. Are they, do they get back to the top of the heap out of the big three? Pretty much. There's a couple of years in the 50s where Ford outsells Chevrolet. But at the same time, during the 50s, Detroit was selling so many cars that, you know, even if you were in second place, you were making billions of dollars. Of course. And providing cars for everybody because B24s have bombed the hell out of Europe. Um, but people do rise up again. Old Enzo is over there, starts building some cars in war-torn Europe. Again, Go Like Hell, just an incredible book. And, and I'd love to hear a Thank little you. bit about the movie process as well, because I think a lot of our listeners probably also really like that movie. And I actually just watched the Michael Mann movie, the Enzo Ferrari movie. Have you had a chance to see that one, AJ? I have. I interviewed Michael for, you know, when it came out. Oh, and great. I, I got to know Michael during the, the Ford Ferrari movie. I got to know Michael well. We spent some time in a, driving around Malibu in a Lamborghini talking about, no you know. Uh, yeah, and that was, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Well, I really enjoyed that movie. I love Michael Mann uh, outside of him making a movie about Ferrari. So Me too, uh, so, me too. So it was very exciting. But I uh, appreciated Adam Driver's performance very much as Enzo Ferrari. And again, another A.J. Bain book and another great set of characters. Talk a little bit about your entree into those folks. Did you start with the Deuce? Did you start with Enzo? Who were the people who got you the most interested in, and got you into the story? Okay, so uh, let me just uh, tell the story and hopefully people can just sense how terrifying this whole experience was. But I wrote this proposal. <laughs> it's a book proposal. A book proposal is nothing but a business proposal. It says, this is what the book's about, comprehensive outline, sample chapter, so the you know editors can get a feel of what the writing will be like, uh, a marketing plan. And so I wrote this book proposal. It took like 10 drafts. And I wrote the final proposal one night after a lot of drinks just sitting in my bathtub and where the, the piece was the Maxim crew. You out with the Maxim crew on this uh, during this time? It was a little after that. It was past <laughs> that era. But when it finally came together, this proposal to write about Ford Ferrari sold instantly to a publisher and to Hollywood for a lot of money. And um, 
I didn't have any interviews lined up. So here I was like, I'm a young guy. I have a kid. I have my wife is pregnant with the second kid. And I'm like, I need to make money. This is good. This is a good thing. But at the same time, I can't write this book. I can't do this movie if there's no interviews lined up. And Mm -hmm. I really was not well connected. So it was really scary. So what I did was I made a list of the people I had to get to. And I just put my shoes on and rolled up my sleeves and found them, you know, just like I would say one of the most interesting things to me, at least when I look back on that time, was going back. What, mid mid aughts, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So 2006, 2007, 2008, and the book came out in 2009, was I got to be, you know, I got to go back and find these icons like Phil Hill, the only American born Formula One world champion. Don Fry, the chief executive of Ford Motor Company at the time, Lee Iacocca, John Surtees. I mean, if, if people don't know the story of John Surtees, what that guy accomplished is unbelievable. And the list just goes on. Carol Shelby and uh, so many yeah. people who work for Carol Shelby. And, and you've got a lot of these people. folks who are no longer with us. So it was a great time to do it, right? I, mean, I worry about this with World War II veterans, right? There aren't that many left around. So, you know, getting these folks on record when you still can is so important. I totally agree with you. And it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing to get to do that. Talk mm-hmm. to Dan Gurney. And I still have the tapes. Get to interview Dan Gurney and Phil Hill. What a gentleman. My hero. Gurney is one of my heroes. Oh, oh, my God. Guy. He was such a, he was so kind to me. All of these guys, they were so kind. And, you know, some of them are still alive, like A.J. Foyt, who was involved, and Mario Andretti, who I spoke to recently. He's very, very forthcoming with his stories. You know, he's a rookie at Le Mans in 1966. Mm-hmm. And, But that was the best part of that research is getting to find these people. I remember just as a quick story, there's an important point in Go Like Hell at the end of 1965, I think it is, where John Surtees, he's a guy, he's the only man ever to this day to win Grand Prix World Championships on two wheels and four, right? Mm -hmm. And in 1965, he had a devastating crash in Canada before a race, broke a lot of his bones and just really messed himself up, had to relearn how to walk. And you have to imagine this guy, that happened in September 1965. He had to relearn how to walk. He kept a diary of how many steps he could take each day. And within six months, in March 1966, when Ford Ferrari is climaxing, he's still with the Ferrari team, and he climbs in a car and sets a lap record at the Modena (laughs) Autodroma. Think about what kind of human being can do something like that. You crash, you have to relearn how to walk, and within six months, you're setting lap records in a Ferrari. Not many uh, four-wheel drivers go and are successful on two wheels, but occasionally a, a really fast two-wheel driver can come jump into a four-wheel car and really hustle. Uh, Surtees is incredible too. Were you kind of originally attracted to the the racing story, the racing side of things? It sounds like you actually got interviews with a lot of the of the wheel folks, but there's also a, a fascinating corporate story here, right? Which is at least touched on in the Michael Mann movie about Ferrari. What was most exciting to you to write about, or did you like both aspects of it? That's a great question and very appreciated. So. In the original proposal that I wrote to do this book, I pointed out this story lives and breathes on a lot of different levels. And so that's what was going to try to make it, hopefully, was going to make it successful. It's a sports story. It's about the greatest sporting rivalry, some would say, of all time. Definitely the greatest motor racing rivalry. It's totally a sports movie. I never thought about this. Or the movie version of your book is a sports film. Like It's like a classic. It's a sports sports story, right? It's a massive business story. One of my favorite quotes I got from this guy, Jack Passano, who I interviewed, and he was the head of Ford Performance at the time, sort of the executive in charge of the racing at the time, or one of them. And he said, well, he didn't say this to me. This he said to Sports Illustrated at that time. (laughs) He said, you go to a football game and you got 100,000 people there. 
Nobody wants to buy a goddamn football. But if you go to a motor race, everybody there, those are all your customers. That's why you want to win. And, you know, this book, it's a business story. It's all about totally. Ford Motor Company trying to reinvent itself in the 60s with the youth generation, launching the Mustang, creating a marketing platform to get people to buy the Mustang. And most importantly, people, you know, will maybe not know this, but our bombers ripped all of Europe to shreds during mm -hmm. World War II. So when we had this massive car buying frenzy in America in the 50s, Europe was going to have that in the 60s because it took mm -hmm. that long for the economy to recover and for literally the roads and bridges to literally sure. be rebuilt. Yep. And so Henry Ford II has this idea, there's going to be a car buying frenzy in Europe in the 60s. How do we get all these people to buy Ford cars? We do what has never been done. No American team has ever gone to the 24 hours of Le Mans and won the race. That's the story. So one other thing, it also works. I don't mean to be callous because I mean this. In, it was an extraordinary violent period in motorsport. Sure. And so if you were to describe this story in Hollywood, you would use the term action adventure. It's also mm -hmm. an action adventure story because here you have these larger than life, super famous, young, beautiful icons risking their lives and dying sure. in the pursuit of international glory. There's a reason why we know their names today, the ones who are not with us as well as the ones who are. Yeah, sometimes rubbing shoulders with movie stars, all that. It's I, I, I think it's a, another thing that I am attracted to in the story is it's, it's so romantic, not just the people and the, the ambitions, but the settings too. It's a beautiful international settings. You're in France, you're in Southern California at a kind of exciting time, you know, centers of corporate power in Detroit. So super international, but also just kind of interesting locations and interesting settings. It must have been fun not only to research it, but I presume to go to some of these locations, right? As you were uh, doing the research for the book. Absolutely. Here's just one example. There's one scene that takes place at a five-mile high-speed oval in Romeo, Michigan. And it's a really critical scene. And I'm like, to write this scene, I have dialogue, I have characters. It's where Ken Miles drives the Ford GT40 427 for the first time. So this giant 427 engine, they stick into a car that weighs practically nothing and stands 40 inches off the ground. This is the honeycomb car, or this is still the original kind of design? The original design. Yeah, okay, gotcha, okay. I, I believe it's the Mark II, Okay. Right? This is the car that, that eventually wins in 66. Gotcha. So I wanted to go to this place because I'm writing the scene. I want to be able to know what it smells mm -hmm. like. And I, sure. I did some research and found out that Ford, uh, they owned Aston Martin at the time, and they were running this Aston Martin driving school at this racetrack. So I got to go there and drive Aston Martins around this racetrack, which was pretty fun. I have to say, as far as research, that's about as good as that's it about as good as it gets, right? <laughs> Way better than sitting in the National Archive for eight hours a day, just like you know, yeah. staring at old pieces of paper. But yeah, yeah it, was, totally. it was pretty cool. It was fun. I can only imagine. Uh, talk a little bit about. I'm I actually I'm curious, not with all your books that you write, not just go like hell, but um, what kind of access you look to get to the actual machines themselves? I mean, did you crawl around a B24? Have you been in, in GT40s? What is that like? And what kind of access do you get once you say, I'm writing the history on this machine? In all the cases, I did the best I could with the resources that I had. So for example, I could go and look at GT40s, real ones, you know, period, correct, the cars of the era, but I was never able to drive one. Just for example, a guy named Rob Kaufman, he lives in Charlotte and he, he runs a restoration shop. And he owns the original 
you know, Le Mans winning 427, GT40 from 66, and he did this restoration of it. And it's pretty wild, but I didn't get to drive it, not yet. And but I didn't get to get close to it. I didn't get to fly a B24, <laughs> but I got to see one, you know? And hopefully crawl around in a little bit to get the tight conditions. Didn't get to crawl around in a B24, but other airplanes of that era. But one of the cool things is that in the research, like a lot of the original production material still exists. Like, for example, you can go on Amazon right now and buy all of the original engineering papers for the GT40 that Ford produced. No kidding. Original wow. engineers, like, like, for example, the engineering papers on how they um, successfully built the electrical system in that car. Because of heat and vibration, it kept failing. So when they finally did it right, there's an engineering paper that documents it. Same with the dyno work that they did, where they, you know, they took this 427 engine in a dyno room in Dearborn and made it go for 48 hours straight and actually used a computer, brand new technology at the time, to actuate a clutch. So the engine would run these laps around the around the Circuit de la Sarre, you know, the Le <laughs> Mans racetrack with the correct RPMs, the correct you understand what I'm saying. Phil Hale. I, to, I, to, I totally understand what you're saying. Ferrari had no chance. That's what you're saying. Oh. <laughs> he, he, Ferrari had no chance. But anyway, okay. so I, I couldn't drive a 427 GT40, but I did do everything that I could to make it so I can try to make the reader feel like he or she did. Which is what matters and, and certainly is something I felt while reading these books. I recently, just a, a brief sidebar anecdote, I stumbled almost on the second and third place finishing cars from the famous one, two, three, sixty six finish. Uh, Randy Nonnenberg, our co-founder, who I think you've interviewed for maybe New York Times before. I went to Colorado with my family for Christmas and he said, oh, you're going to Boulder? You got to go to this Shelby Museum. Do you know this place, AJ? I do. Right there, you walk in and there's the second and third place finisher from the one, two, three, sixty six finish right there along with couple of those uh, J cars and just, I mean, unbelievable collection of Shelby memorabilia there. That is an unbelievable collection. How it came to be in Colorado, I've never actually been there, but I did talk to the people who run it. And, you know, we talked at length about what's there. I, that's just- It's, it's a, you should go, if you can get there. I mean, I happen to be there by coincidence. I have no idea why it's in Boulder and it's in, it's like a little cul-de-sac, one room in the back, you know, it's only open on Saturdays and I mean, CSX 2000 is there and the first Comp Cobra is there and the last Comp Cobra is there. I mean, it was unbelievable. Anyway, not like I need to recommend you uh, what Shelby, Shelby things to go see, but it was, uh, it was pretty mind blowing and it almost feel the history when you're in places like that. And I imagine yeah. you're for, for your research, you're in, you're in locations like that all the time where it's, it's in the air. It does come up. It does come up when, you know, I would have to say like of all the cool cars I've gotten to drive. I did get to drive production number one Shelby Cobra, the first production Cobra ever made. Wow. Wow. Where uh, It's in a private collection or is that somewhere out where people can see? Or does Shelby maybe own that one? It's owned by Bruce Meyer, who's just one of my favorite people on this planet. Um, yeah, a friend of the website. We love Bruce. He's great. Excellent. Everybody loves, who knows Bruce? Everybody loves him. Yeah, love that's Bruce. correct. And he let yeah. me drive that car, you know, and it's worth a pretty penny. Yep. Thank you, for Bruce. For sure. Amazing, man. Up top, we were talking about uh, Randy Lanier and your kind of most recent project. And I said, I'd love to have you talk about that a little bit. And it sounded like there's maybe a surprise or an announcement. Is there something you want to talk about about that? That's your most recent work. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. So for people who don't know, Randy Lanier, this book is different than um, other ones I've written because it's really Randy's autobiography. So it's called Survival of the Fastest. And the story, it's, it's by Randy Lanier with AJ Bain. So basically, I interviewed him thousands of hours and I wrote the story. And, you know, we then edited it together. 
came out last year. And just to sum it up here, you yeah, have- give, give us the give us the quick. I mean, I, I only know a little bit about Randy Lunar. I've seen the you know brief YouTube clips and people will talk about what an amazing story it is. But give us the good stuff. Well, an up and coming American race car driver. Um, he ends up being the 1982 IMSA national champion, uh, the 1986 Indy 500 rookie of the year, sets lap records for a rookie at Indianapolis, finishes 10th rookie of the year, uh, skyrocketing career. But at the same time, people are noticing something strange about him in that uh, he has no sponsorship anywhere on his cars. He just seems to have endless, endless, endless amounts of money. And so what the story is, is that while Randy is becoming the super famous, super successful race car driver with the goal of winning the Indy 500 during the 80s, he's also running a massive, massive marijuana smuggling operation out of Columbia through different ports in the United States. So the book comes to be about this guy who's rising up in the world of motor racing, but also running this massive business. It's a business story, really, how you run this massive smuggling operation. When he starts, it's the 1970s. And, you know, everybody's a hippie and even the cops are smoking weed. But, Mm -hmm. you know, then we move into the Reagan era 80s and the war on drugs and he's ramping up and he can't stop because he always needs more money because to race against Ford and Jaguar, you have to have more money than Ford and Jaguar. So uh, that's the story. And, uh, you know, the two narratives collide in the end. And Randy spends 27 years in prison where he ends up redeeming himself and being, you know, really an incredible human being. He spent nine years as a suicide counselor. So if you were in prison in Leavenworth, um, he was sentenced to life in prison. If you uh, tried to take your own life, he would become your coach and keep you alive. Wow. So this story works Uh, on many levels. It's really moving. A, what was it like? I, I, I'm excited to read it. What was it like spending all that time with Randy? He's a, a charming guy by all accounts. Charming guy. We had a blast, man. We <laughs> we just spent a lot of time by just recording stories. I would just get him talking and try to keep him focused because sometimes he'd talk about this and then that and that. Mm-hmm. And it made it really difficult when I sat down to write. But we spent a lot of time just hanging out, sitting in his backyard, talking. He's really an extraordinary person who's become the sort of uplifting, sort of motivational speaker. And so I found him to be really inspiring personally, whole other unexpected level. And when you're doing autobiographical work like that, have you ever done another book like this in this kind of format? First time. It's first time. And you know, it's really hard to do because it's very hard to be writing someone's story that it's so personal to them. Sure. And then getting along with that person. It's it can be really tricky because I talk to him all the time. We're pals and it's all good. And how much when you're telling that story, do you give the context of the air? There was a, a lot of drugs in racing at the time, wasn't there? I mean, there's the, oh God, the name is escaping right now. The, the brothers who were winning Le Mans and racing unlimited airplanes at Reno and everything and uh, drugs all over the place, right? So he was just one of a kind of piece of a larger story. Yes. And that's what makes it a bigger epic story because it wasn't Whittington. Just Whittington. There we go. Sorry. It took me a second. I got to drive the 1979 Whittington Brothers Le Mans winning Porsche 935. That's You're another kidding Bruce Meyer, oh, another man. car, another Bruce Meyer car. So that's good. That car is a lot. He's, He's got all the interesting ones. If they're not at that place in Boulder, I guess they're, they're down there at, yeah. uh, at Bruce's, Bruce's collection. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, so when you're when you're writing a book like this, you there is you're telling the larger story too, or yes. it's mainly focused on Ran- Randy's life. Well, it's Randy's story, but it's my job as a writer to take his story and give it the sort of epic treatment that it needs. Sure. To transcend, sure. like he can tell you his story, 
But, you know, my job as a writer is to do the contextualizing yeah. and go out and do the research, find dialogue, look at old video, you know, be able to set the scenes and make you feel again like you're in the room rather than just reading the book. Every time you talk about one of these projects, they're also cinematic, AJ. So uh, maybe could you talk to us a little bit about how this, you, it was interesting you saying that the Go Like Hell book and movie rights sold at the same time. Am I, am I getting that right? So that's interesting. And that's been an ongoing part of your writing career. Are you always thinking about that? Or, I mean, you're obviously a cinematic writer, but I don't know if you're thinking about the actual cinema piece and how that fits into all of it while you're, while you're writing the books. Well, thank you for asking. I don't think about it. It's just the way my brain works because I'm, I'm of the certain generation and so many listeners and um, would feel this way. I came of age, you know, as a kid, right when cable TV hit and we had HBO and I just watched movies constantly. It was like, and I was a kid, I didn't do any homework. I was watching, you know, just how many times I've seen Rocky two and Rocky three. It's just the way my brain works. And the way I was taught to tell stories uh, came through those movies. Gotcha. How did the Ford versus Ferrari movie come about? And what was your involvement level? And and I mean, were you were you hanging around the production? Were you just advising? What, how did that come to be? And, and what was your involvement level? The film went through many iterations and it took me hours to explain it all. This is a whole separate podcast. It's all good. So really I had nothing to do with actually like what you actually saw on the screen. Mm -hmm. I, I was involved in earlier iterations and more with more hands-on and I got to meet with Michael Mann. He was a producer on it for a while. He was to be the director and uh, it was just a great experience. I'll tell you one thing, what to me that film did that I think is so important is that it really opened the eyes of whole new generations of people to the wonder of that story, why it's important, who those people were. You know, just like Drive to Survive, there's all sorts of people who know who Carol Shelby is now who never mm -hmm. would have because, you know, these massive numbers of crazy Carol Shelby fans, you know, are getting older. And mm -hmm. now their kids and their grandkids know who he is and they're fans. And I think that's yeah. important to his legacy, not just his legacy, but the legacy of, you know, of the automobile industry. I think that's really well said. And as a person who's interest in history. I appreciate it when stories like that, you know, it's how a lot of Americans, to your point, receive their history, right? So when those things are done thoughtfully and based on such great source material like your book, it makes a big difference. Uh, occasionally, you stumble into something that doesn't have very good history and it's it's tough, right? So uh, definitely not the case with Ford versus Ferrari. What did um, you think of the new Michael I Mann? Mean, I liked it. I mean, some people are having a tough time with it, but I liked that. I think a lot of biopics try to go too broad, right? So I liked that it focused in on one period of time. Again, I love location, so really feeling like you're in Italy in the in the late 50s was wonderful. Michael Mann has kind of a realism to his storytelling. I mean, I even like Miami Vice, the Colin Farrell movie that, as I know, not universally adored. So I, I just like watching his work. I just think it looks great. It's nice to have a good plot, but I don't always need a plot. Vibes are good for me. And so um, uh, I thought that movie had fantastic vibes uh, and really kind of put you in the place. And I found myself, you know, gripping my seat. And that's always a, a good sign. I thought the same thing. I thought the racing footage was excellent. I thought the mm -hmm. scene setting was brilliant. And you know what was really wonderful about it? One of the things, at least, because I interviewed Michael and he told me, you know, how much effort they made to film everything and where it really was. Mm -hmm. So when Adam Driver, you know, when he goes to the mausoleum, Dino Ferrari's mausoleum, that's the actual family that's mausoleum. That's a real place. That's, that I mean, that's a awesome. real place. When he goes and he gets a shave, that's the barbershop where Enzo Ferrari went. And that was the chair that Enzo Ferrari used to sit, sit awesome. in. Yeah. It's so awesome. It's I would cool. expect nothing less from Michael Mann, right? But I mean, you know, even in, in Ford versus Ferrari, you really feel like you're in SoCal when you're hanging out with those characters, right? And, you know, I, I grew up in Southern California, but in the 1980s and 90s. And so there's a romanticism to 1960s and 
the 1960s era of that, you know, part of the, of the country. So feeling like you're there is, um, and I know they did shoot it down there. It, it's meaningful. Those, those are the things that transport a viewer, I think. I think so too. Uh, you know, one of the great things about writing Go Like Hell was getting to sort of try to put myself in all those places. I mean, there's so many pictures that exist. I remember the day I met Dave Friedman, who was Carol Shelby's personal photographer, his official photographer. And I went into Dave Friedman's home. This had to be 2007. And he just had stacks. I mean, stacks yeah, man. Of, of slides. And I think all of those slides are now in the collection of the Benson Ford Research Center in Dearborn, Michigan. I, think. I was going to say, I hope somebody's preserving those or making an attempt to. I believe they're they're there now. But um, it was just like, because you need all those images. And this is what's great about YouTube now. That didn't exist for mm-hmm. writers working in previous generation. Is it helps so much with writing and trying to set scenes, which to me is so important. You want to you want to know what people are wearing. You want to know totally. what the room looks like, where you know the angle of the sun, all of it, in in order to again make the reader feel like he or she is in that place that you're trying to write about. But particularly though, Ford versus Ferrari, all of the scenes take place in such amazingly cool places. You know, totally. whether it's Daytona or you know Sebring Racetrack. Or, you know, the Rouge, you know? The- yeah, totally. Totally. Or if you're in or if you're in France. I mean, one of my favorite scenes of all time is the beginning of the movie Le Mans, the Steve McQueen movie, where he's just driving his gray 911 around around the town, you know, and, and looking at the track. I love that kind of stuff. It's such good scene setting. I agree. Well, thanks for joining us, AJ. Actually, before before we break, anything else you want to talk about? Any uh, any projects you think our audience should know about that you're working on or that you have coming up? No, I, I don't want to give any secrets away. <laughs> I'm just I'm just so thankful that you had me on and gave me opportunity and asked such intuitive questions. I really appreciate it so much. Well, I could go on and on and on. And I, I uh, maybe maybe we can do it again. Maybe we can do round two. Have you out here to the uh, office and do it here? It would be fun to sit across the table and then maybe go have a beer afterwards. So if you're down for that, maybe we can plan for that sometime in the future. That is a plan. Maybe Mr. Nonnenberg will join us. I've written we would love that. about his. He has he has an amazing. He and his dad an old 300 Chrysler that they drove oh, across Mexico. It's downstairs, right under, it's right underneath me, man. That car is, is amazing. That? Maybe that we can get cool. him to fire that up. It's so cool. It's a, a 300B Chrysler. I love that car. Speaking of, you know, kind of peak of American car production right after the war, really amazing car. Brilliant. Um, well, thanks, AJ. Really appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on, on everything. It's a really impressive body of work and loved hearing about your story, loved hearing how everything came to be and uh, can't wait to talk to you next time. All right. Thank you so much. Keep up the great work. I really appreciate it.